True Crime South Africa is published in conjunction with Arena Holdings, publishers of Times Live, Business Live, Sowetan Live and others. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of Arena Holdings and its affiliates. This is True Crime South Africa. I'm Nicole Engelbrecht and you're listening to my interview with Renal Kukamur, Counseling Coordinator for the Rape Crisis Cape Town Trust. Before we get into today's episode, I'd like to thank our new supporters for the week. A huge thank you goes out to Chantal Roberts, Ashley Mendoza, and Melissa Barnard for your support on Patreon. Thank you so much for your support, everyone. It really does make a huge difference. If you'd like to support the show on Patreon or PayPal, I'll leave a link in the show notes. If you like discounts, who doesn't? Head over to King Online for your health and beauty needs or Print Crowd for all your printing requirements and use the code TCSA10 at checkout for a 10% discount and support the show at the same time. Other forms of support that make a huge difference include following the show on social media, inviting your friends, family, postman, hairdresser and parole officer to listen and leaving reviews on the podcast platform you use to listen. True Crime South Africa is, of course, my main podcast baby, but I've also hosted the Devil's Dorp Companion podcast, and in 2022, you could possibly see some more podcasts popping into your feed from me. You can also follow my Facebook page to get updates on those new projects. Up front, I would like to thank ESCOM for being an absolute pain in the butt and scheduling their load shedding smack bang in the middle of this interview. Not to be deterred though, I used mobile data to record, which while not producing the best sound quality I've ever had, still did do the job. So an A plus to Vodacom for supplying decent signal during load shedding, and an F as well as a U thrown in for ESCOM's non-existent service. Rape and sexual violence is rampant in our country and it is significantly underreported. Perhaps, more importantly, as a base point, it is significantly misunderstood. The concepts of rape, sexual violence, consent, and surviving these acts being perpetrated upon you are cloaked in myth and too often shame and self-doubt. And then we add in the fact that we have a significant gap in the available psychosocial services in our country and fighting the scourge of sexual violence seems like a losing battle. But it's not really. Because there are organisations in our country that are working to stem the tide, provide survivors with support and educate. One such organisation is the Rape Crisis Cape Town Trust. I had the pleasure of chatting with Renal Kukumur, who is the counselling coordinator for the organisation. When I interview people, I try not to be too structured about it. The question and answer thing is really limiting, in my opinion. So I really just want to have a conversation about the issues at hand and whatever comes up. And I think that worked really well with Renal, because we chatted about the services that the organisation offers. But I think we also delved into some really important discussions, and I'm excited to share this with you. A trigger warning, of course, this interview does involve discussion of rape and sexual violence, which may be triggering to some listeners. 
We also use actual names of body parts, like vagina, penis and anus, because, well, that's what they're called. And we say words like penetration, erection, lubrication and even the F-word, all in the context of the discussion we're having. So maybe not the episode to listen to in your car while going through the drive-thru. So let's get into my interview with Renal Kukumur of Rape Crisis Cape Town Trust. The following episode may contain sensitive material including descriptions of violence, sexual assault or graphic descriptions of injuries to victims. If you feel you may be triggered by such material, please consider this before accessing our content. To access trauma counselling or services, please see the helpline information on our show notes. My name is Renal Kukumur and I am currently the counselling coordinator at an organisation called Rape Crisis Cape Town Trust. So we're based in Cape Town, but we do, we do work all over the country and we, we run a 24-hour helpline service that we get called from anywhere and everywhere. The organisation's sort of been in place, I think, since the, the middle of the 70s. So we've got quite a, a long history but we deal with basically rape and sexual violence only. So, you know, you get a lot of organizations dealing with gender-based violence more broadly, but rape crisis's expertise is very much around sexual violence. And we have a bunch of different projects. So we have an advocacy team who focus on things like systematic change in the courts or the hospitals or the police. Um, we have a making change team who go into schools or communities um, and give talks on rape myths and, and, and things like that. And then we have sort of like a court division, court support, and they, they sort of walk the criminal justice trial journey with the rape survivors if they're going through the court process. And then we have counselling, um, the counselling service, which is what I sort of run and manage, is we... We counsel rape survivors or sexual violence survivors, and that, and it's a free. All of these services are free as well, which is is quite amazing. But it's the counseling model is very much around crisis counseling, trauma counseling. But it's entirely up to the survivor. And we recruit volunteers within the community themselves if, that we work in, and train them as lay counselors as well. So it's very, it's a lot more sort of grassroots, you know, as opposed to maybe a more professional model of counselling or psychosocial support. You know, I know I'm biased, but I think the counselling is, is the sort of the beauty of the organisation because it's very, very hard to get access to psychosocial services, affordable psychosocial services and trauma counselling in South Africa, I think anyway. But also because, you know, sexual violence is very unique and the trauma of sexual violence is unique. And so... It's great to be able to extend that expertise into sort of psychological interventions. But what, what's also really cool is that in the counselling room, we see a bit of everything. So we see the legal process. We see the police process. We see the perpetrator. We see the, you know, the criminological aspects of the perpetrator. We see the victim sort of thing. Like you really get a full, a full picture of sexual violence in, in the counselling room as well. So, so like I said, I am biased, but I think that, Counselling is very uniquely placed in that way. So this is very clearly a hugely vital service. All of the aspects that Renal touched on here 
are so important for survivors of sexual violence to have access to. But I think most important is the counselling portion. Because we know psychologists and psychiatrists are expensive. And of course I understand why they are, but let's face it, they are pretty much outside of the affordability scope of most people in this country. I think a big part of it as well, which is why I think rape crisis is very important, is that we're like a good starting point. So if you've been through rape 20 years ago, if you were raped yesterday, you can rock up at the office and or call us on the, the helpline and say, what do I do now? You know, so we can funnel people in the direct, the, the sort of best direction, which I think is helpful because a lot of people don't know where to start. And I mean, when you're working with trauma as well, you know, the, the people have so many things going on and there's so many voices in their head saying people, no one's going to believe you or the police are incompetent or, you know, I'm not a good rape survivor or whatever. So it's, it's a good place to start and to sort of be like, you know, we are here, bring, come as you are and like, we will see what you need. And if it is psychiatric intervention, then we'll go that way. If it's about reporting, we'll go that way. I, I wish there were more services like this, definitely. And I think that's an excellent way to describe what rape crisis does. I see it as a sort of trauma triage process. At a point in a survivor's life where they might really have no idea where to go next, Renal and her colleagues offer guidance and resources. Although I'm well aware that Rape Crisis is not the only organisation of this type, it is an organisation that runs on donations, and they can only provide as many resources as their funds allow. I asked Renal whether she felt that the organisation was stretched as far as resources are concerned, considering the massive problem we have with rape and sexual violence in this country. Definitely. I think, let me put it this way, I think rape crisis's work has only gotten, we've only gotten bigger, right? We've only, we've had to struggle through, there was a financial crisis at one stage and, and the need for the service is there, but, you know, funding and, and things like that is always a bit of a, a hurdle and a battle. But also, you know, there's many different people in the game. So people want, you know, they want funding for their territory maybe and so it is also in that sense you've got to you've got to play that game as well and luckily there are much more qualified people than me to deal with that side of it but um what I will say is like we it just in in February you know they were reporting on the crime stats that it was a decline in the number of rapes reported and in my sort of six years of working at Rape Crisis, we've never been busier in, in the month of February seeing counselling counseling survivors. So, like, you know, as much as those stats are out there from the police side or from the CJ, the criminal justice system side, we've never been busier. There's a huge demand for, for these services. This is why I'm always so cautious about stats. Because, firstly... We know that the number of reported rapes does not equate to the number of actual rapes. Survivors do not always report for various reasons. And the second reason I tend to only take a cursory interest in in statistics is because the people on the ground are telling a very different story. I wondered how many of the survivors that come through the doors of rape crisis 
actually go through with reporting their crimes to the police. Now, I sprung this question on Renal, but her answer actually says quite a lot, I think. I can't give you like a hard number, but what I will say is at least, at least like 50% of our counselling people have tried in some way. So it might not be a full trial, but they've, you know, they've opened a case or they've accessed forensic services in some way or they've, you know, gone to police station or something. So, you know, it's not that survivors are completely not wanting to go that direction, but I think there is a lot of mistrust and apprehension. So so they, they definitely sort of, if I can say, they flirt with the criminal justice system in a certain way. But I wouldn't say everybody goes through to reporting or to keeping a case going. And I, I mean, I think that's a big misconception as well, is that, you know, rape trials take years. They're not, you don't report on Friday and, you know, by next week, the person is in jail. It's it's a long uphill um, battle. So it's it's quite, you have a lot of survivors that withdraw because, you know, it's it's hard, it's harsh on you. And But I know, our, you know, our court support team are also very busy. So, you know, there are survivors in the system and they are accessing the criminal justice. Just so that we're all on the same page, and because I know that there is a very clear societal idea about what rape and sexual violence means, I asked Renal to provide her definition of rape as it pertains to survivors. Uh, you know, and, and I will say this, it's a tricky one because a lot of the times we, we do get more and more people phoning saying, this happened to me, does this count as rape? Or would you say I was raped? And that's that's a difficult one because you don't want to give somebody a label that they might not be that might not be helpful for them. So it's it's a lot up to the person as well about what does being raped or what does being a rape survivor mean to you in certain things because you you know you have the stereotype of rape as very violent, stranger danger situation, but you know. It's so much more complicated than that. And the law actually does recognize that where, you know, rape is sort of like, it's a violent crime where the perpetrator uses sexual acts or sexual, you know, to perform sexual acts to intentionally harm or hurt another person. And it's really a weaponization of sex and sexuality in all its, social meanings, religious, moral, all of those meanings, in order to terrorize, dehumanize, humiliate the other person. And like I said, I think there is a stereotype about rape looking a very specific way. But I think what people need to realize is that sexual violence is not a hierarchy, it's a spectrum. You know, like it's, it, it, there's so many different things that it can look like. It could be your husband, it could be you know, a female partner. Um, it might not be a penis in a vagina necessarily, but it it could be, you know, fingers in, in someone's mouth or someone's or, um, anus or something like that. So it's, it, it's, it's complicated to pin down. But what I will say is that the law recognizes that it's penetration in an orifice of a sexual nature. So it can be like I said, fingers in an anus or someone putting their penis in someone else's mouth, that counts as rape. And that's actually quite, well, in South Africa's history, that's recent, that's since 2007. Before then, 
sort of the apartheid era law said, you know, rape is a man using his penis to penetrate a woman's vagina. And it also said, you know, a husband can't rape his wife. It's not recognized as a crime. So there was no, there was no sort of room made for male survivors of sexual violence or, or rape. You know, if you were a man, you, can't, you couldn't be raped according to the old law. Whereas now it's a lot more gender neutral. It's a lot more inclusive. And also consent is understood in a very different way in the current law, which I think, you know, you said in your email is, is coercive circumstances. The law tries to take that into account now is that consent is not, you know, just you saying no, no, no. It's got a lot to do as well with, you know, is the person giving consent to spe- the specific act, the sexual act that's happening? Are they giving consent to, you know, enthusiastically do they are they compass to give consent so even in the law if you're under the influence of drugs or alcohol it's not necessarily seen as you giving consent you know you, you're not sort of seen as being able to give consent and obviously that's all lovely on paper but rape and sexual violence have very social meanings as well and that's I think that's where the tension is coming in a lot of the time. So a few things for us to unpack there. Firstly, can we all please collectively just take a moment to feel complete nausea that South African law used to say that rape cannot occur between spouses? Secondly, can we please thank our lucky stars that this and so many other aspects of our rape and sexual violence laws actually changed? Just one quick example that I was thinking of when Renal was talking about this is the Nicholas Nino case. You'll likely remember this as the so-called Dross child rapist case, in which Nino was convicted of raping a seven-year-old child in a toilet in a Dross restaurant in Silverton. This case is actually a prime example of how the new South African laws around rape and sexual violence work to serve survivors, because Nino did not actually penetrate the child with his penis. He digitally raped her. So if we were back in the day, he would have been found guilty of a far lesser crime, and he would have been back out on the streets in a short space of time. So if you think that the wording of legal terms and policies is unimportant, think again. It has real-life consequences. The other thing that Renal started to touch on here is consent. And I'd specifically mentioned to her that I wanted to discuss consent under coercion, because more and more this has been something I've been thinking about. And just consent in general. I know so many people think it's a confusing term, but really, it's not. Here's what Renal had to say. Sure. So, I mean, consent, the way that we try to conceptualize it is, firstly, it's ongoing. So, you know, it's, it's like a, it's a process. It's not just, I said yes five minutes ago, so I'm still saying yes now. But the other very important thing is it's enthusiastic, which is that, you know, the person really wants to have sex or wants to do the sexual acts or whatever, um, and is excited for that and, you know, is, is happy to be engaged in that. And if, if, if you're not enthusiastic about the sex you're ha- having, then you need to sort of, you know, you need to take a step back. And if your partner's not enthusiastic about what you're doing to them, 
you know, you should be, you need to think about, you know, is this, does this count as consent? And it's also specific, like I said, just, you know, consent to, you know, having, giving someone a blowjob is not consent to penetrative sex or, you know, things like that. And I think, and there's this real idea of like consent in relationships is implied or it's not sexy to talk about these things. But I think the reality is also that a lot of, you know, couples or a lot of people have been having very healthy, happy, consensual sex for years. And you know the difference, you know. So there is this sort of idea that, you know, consent is this elusive concept that people often get wrong and they make accidentally. But it is much more, I think it's much more natural than racist, if I can put it that way, in a lot of ways. I mean, you can tell the difference between uh, a comfortable and uncomfortable sexual experience. And, And I think, you know, that's one of the big things as well that we say to survivors who ask us the question, like, does this count as rape or sexual violence? Is, you know, if you're still feeling unsure and uncomfortable about something that happened to you, you know, that's valid. You know, there's a reason. There's a reason you feel that way. And it might not mean it was rape, but it, don't think you're crazy or that you're overreacting. There's a reason that that doesn't sit well with you um, or that encounter still you know, haunts you or plagues you long afterwards, I think, as well. So consent, I think, is is less of a mythical concept than we sometimes think. So I I would say, like, it boils down to that it's enthusiastic, it's specific to act, the act itself, it's ongoing, and importantly, it can also be taken away at any time. So you can say, actually, you know, I thought I was comfortable with this, but I'm not really and and yeah, so that that's what I would sort of sum up as as being consent. Renal raises a seriously important issue here, and that is consent within relationships, and that it is not implied. The society and even the country we live in is still very much based on so-called old-fashioned ideals. And part of that is often that when you enter into a relationship, your body now belongs to the marriage or partnership, and that sex is somehow a duty of being someone's romantic partner. And this is a touchy issue, because it's not just a legal consideration, it's an emotional one, it's often even a religious one. It's an idea that's passed down from generation to generation but it's something we need to start thinking about and talking about because it very often plays a role in another major scourge we talk about, which is domestic violence. And having consent taken away from you within a relationship doesn't always look like violence. Sometimes it looks like doing something to avoid an argument or doing something because you were promised something which doesn't materialize. It can be as simple as consenting to a specific act that you actually don't want to do because the other person might sulk. You're not making that choice out of your free will because there is a condition attached to it. Rennell also wanted to clarify, though, that sexual violence or the issue of consent within relationships is a very personal issue. I'm realizing now as well that a lot of the things that I, I think in this line of work that we take for granted 
are actually things that people maybe you know haven't really hashed out for themselves or their relationships yet so on the one hand I want to say trust your gut like if you if you're still feeling uncomfortable about something that happened then you know maybe you do need some support around that if you know it might not be accusing someone of rape but it's definitely maybe worth chatting to someone about or speaking to your partner about it and saying you know that wasn't cool I really didn't like that when you did that but um you know this idea of coerced consent is a is such a tricky one that you know unfortunately we see playing out in the courts and things as well where for example survivors will say their boss promised them a promotion if they had sex with them and then the survivor did have sex with the boss and then the boss didn't give the promotion. And then society is like, rah, rah, how could you do that? It's all your fault. Like, what did you think would happen? When in reality, actually, that's coercive consent because, you know, you, you consented to something, something thinking this would be the outcome. And when that wasn't the outcome, it means that you, what you consented to was not what happened. And I think that, that's very important. And, and that extent, I mean, that's a sort of transactional thing. And I think that's what sex workers deal with a lot is that, you know, they're promised a certain amount of money and they are consenting to a sexual act for this amount of money. And then when that's taken away, it's like, well, you know, what did you expect? You still had sex with the person for money. But actually, no, they, they had, you know, they were raped or they experienced sexual violence because they were promised a certain amount of money and that's just taken away. And so what they consented to didn't happen. Something else did. In this case, because it's sexual, it would count as sexual violence and rape. And exactly what you said about if you don't give me a blowjob, then I, I'm going to sulk or I'm not talking to you. It, it's coercive and it's, it's, it doesn't count as enthusiastic consent. And I think it, it boils down to do you want to do that thing? You know, are you excited about doing that thing? And I think uh, most of us know what that feels like, you know, is when you do want to do something sexual with your partner or with somebody. And if you are feeling uncomfortable, you know, to honor that feeling, like what is that about? But I think, I think a lot of people take things like marriage or long-term relationships as implied consent. And it's actually not, yeah, you are consenting to maybe a relationship with a person, but not, you know, having sex whenever they feel like it. Now, I want to be very clear here, because this podcast is about rape and sexual violence. When I say that it's important for people to understand the difference between real and coerced consent within relationships, I'm not for a minute saying that every person who has ever had sex with their partner to keep them happy should be laying a charge of rape against them. That's not the point. What I am saying, and what I think Renal beautifully gets across, is that if this is regularly happening within your relationship, then maybe you need to think about why that's happening and what it means for you as a human being. If coerced consent is a regular part of your day-to-day life, is that relationship really serving you? And why do you feel the need to acquiesce? For me, it's really about starting that internal conversation, either with yourself or with your partner, but most importantly, yourself and acknowledging that it's not okay. And maybe it's not criminal, or maybe it is, but regardless, it should not be normalized. 
And I know that that's going to make a lot of people feel very uncomfortable. And I'm okay with that. Because, let's face it, as much as we've made many great strides in our country, we are still very much bound to the ideals that have been passed down to us. No, absolutely. And I mean, I think you're so right. I think as much as we have this very progressive, you know, policies and constitution, we're, we're still a very conservative country, and especially religiously. And you do get that, you know, if you are getting married, then what did you, what did you expect was going to happen? And that, that's the importance of saying that, you know, as much as the law might say all these wonderful things, it needs to be a social shift and a cultural shift in our understanding of what consent means before the law can actually have any chutzpah behind it, if I can put it that way. Because you know, be, until people can genuinely for themselves say, actually, husband, I wasn't cool with that. That made me really uncomfortable. Uh, the law is not, you know, people are not going to come forward. They're not going to want to report. Never mind come for counselling or come for, you know, chat to their friends about it. I mean, even though it's like one of those harmful old jokes that we still make is like the, oh, she had a headache again last night or, oh, I just told him I had a headache. It's like, it's not really funny if you think about it because it is a lot about like, you know, you're having to give a reason for not wanting to have sex that isn't true. Like you're having to, you know, it's not negotiated at all or it's not communicated. Like actually, you know, I just don't feel like it or something. It's like you have to give a reason that's beyond your control, like a headache. And that's very messed up and it's very old-fashioned. I also want to get this across. Just because we frame this as a husband-wife thing, it's not just that. This is not a female empowerment idea. This is a human empowerment idea. This is a way for us to rethink the way we interact with the human beings we claim to love the most in our lives, and to reconsider what our responsibility to those people and ourselves is. Feeling uncomfortable yet? Fabulous. Get uncomfortable. Get thinking and get talking so that we can stop teaching young women and young men that they in any way own the consent of another person. And more importantly, so that we can stop telling ourselves that. So why is this conversation, amongst others, important to have in the context of fighting against the scourge of rape and sexual violence? Well, because the more we talk about these things, these very simple dynamics within our relationships, the more we give other people permission to start to understand that what is happening to them is not okay. And that snowballs and starts to erode at our societal approach to rape and sexual violence in general. And it will give your grandchild's grandchild, in however many generations, the power to stand up and say, I'm not okay with this. Absolutely. I mean, I think that's so well put because I think... You know, it's, it's, it's the weirdest thing. I'm sure you probably get this as well in your line of work. But like, you know, whenever someone sees where I work or they might see my email address or something, you know, all of a sudden people start telling you stories and they might not be, you know, rape stories. They might be sexual violence stories or on that spectrum. 
you know, it's that simple. It's like if you can if you can normalize a lot of these feelings around, you know, sexual encounters and uncomfortable sexual encounters and around sexual violence, people can start having that vocabulary for themselves and working it out for themselves without thinking they are crazy or overreacting or, you know, and, and you know, the, the reality as well is that in South Africa, and I, I, you know, I think in a lot of places, most survivors know their perpetrator in some way, shape or form. So, it is a lot more complicated than this person raped me, send them to polls more. You know, it's like this person might be someone you were close to who you wouldn't really want to go to prison. Or this person might be close to, you know, might be a family member who, you know, is held in high esteem who you maybe don't really want, you know, you don't think you'll get the support or, you know, the relationship between survivors and perpetrators is much more complicated than, I demand justice via the prison system. Um, and I think that we don't take that into account often. And when survivors are hesitant about, you know, sending their perpetrator to jail, immediately we're like, well, then you, you know, it wasn't rape or what happened to you wasn't serious. And that completely forgets how complicated, I think, human relationships are. Um, and also just things like power dynamics, you know, gender power dynamics, economic circumstances, uh, we have a lot of survivors who come in who were maybe raped by a family member or by a husband, and they say, if this person goes to jail, there's no money, you know, in my family. There's no one to support us. They're the primary breadwinner. So how can you tell me that I must now send this person to prison? It's a complex issue. And the sooner we start to understand that, the sooner we can start breaking down these walls of silence. When someone experiences rape or sexual violence, that complexity eats away at them. There are so many conflicting thoughts that will enter a survivor's head to convince them that they somehow deserved or sought out the attack or allowed the attack to happen. And those thoughts come from all of us. They come from our desire to minimize the horror of what has happened so that we can feel better. No, like, for example, sorry, in the, when we have rape survivors who were maybe raped by someone who, like, broke into their house or something, and then, you know, the person held a gun to their head or maybe didn't even hold a gun to their head but threatened to kill them. They feel so guilty that they, you know, quote-unquote, let the person rape them instead of kill them. And it's, it's bizarre. I mean, what other crime would we say to people you know, you hear it often, it's like, I'd rather be, I wish I was murdered instead of being raped. And I think it's that's such a harmful thing because it's, it's telling women that, like, to be raped is the ultimate, it, it's absolute, it's an absolute death sentence. And, you know, you're completely shamed, you're completely, you know, broken beyond repair. And, like, imagine feeling guilty for, you know, being raped and, you know, letting somebody rape you instead of murder you. And that for me is always heartbreaking. It's like, you know, why why are we telling people that, you know, being raped is worse than being dead? Being raped is worse than being dead. Just let that sink in. Imagine thinking that you would be better off dead and raped than raped and alive. And then the converse is true. Okay, well, I'm alive, so maybe I should just be grateful. 
I mean, a lot of the times it looks like they sort of think like, I don't have to say anything or I don't need to get help because, you know, at least I didn't die or I, well, he didn't threaten me with a gun. But then what happens is it seeps into every part of their life, you know, and they are struggling to go to work or they struggle with trauma or flashbacks or nightmares. And then it's like they sort of feel like, why am I still holding on to all of this? When the reality is it's an incredibly traumatic, horrific thing to happen to somebody. It doesn't matter what it looks like. And you deserve support or help or, you know, somebody to just hold that space for you and hold that pain with you a little bit. But so many people feel like they're not worthy of, of, of the support or of the belief. And I mean, I think it's because society tells, tells survivors that. Heading back to our consent conversation. I've recently been pondering the concept of consent under false pretenses. So the whole Tinder swindler idea, for instance, where someone presents themselves as someone they are not, or even in cult-like situations, where a cult leader may have told a survivor something that's not true in order to get them to have sex with them. I wondered where that fits into the consent continuum. You know, when you agree to a sexual act or to a sexual relationship, you're agreeing to it based on sort of an understanding of who the person is, what they're going to do, you know, and and that's consent, is that I know the full picture and based on my knowledge, I am deciding that, yes, this is something that I'm excited for or that I want to happen. So when parts of that, significant parts of that are missing, you know, it's absolute coercion. And it's, it's, and that happens all the time, you know, and, and, and especially in South Africa where people are desperate for work or they're desperate to, you know, change their circumstances, then they will, they, they might engage in behaviors that we see as being morally questionable. But the reality is that a lot of the time they're doing what they need to, to survive. And then when that's, when that's already happening and then you also, you know, you, you, you lied to them about what they were having sex for, the reasons they were having sex with you or keeping quiet about something, it's wrong and it's, it's sexual violence. Like for me, that it's black and white, that's sexual violence. So really... When someone tells you a story that is different to the truth or makes you a promise that is not how things end up happening because you're entering into that without the full details, you are having the act of giving consent taken away from you without you even knowing it. If you have to promise someone anything or tell a lie in order for the sex act to be agreed to, you do not have that person's consent. Yes is not consent when it's an answer to a question that has not been asked with all the information behind it. And again, I think it's really important to point out that this entire conversation is not about who can and cannot take criminal action for rape and sexual violence. It's about what violation means to you. Yes, this is a true crime podcast. And yes, we want the perpetrators of rape and sexual violence to be punished. But it's not the be-all and end-all for survivors. And it shouldn't be the only focus. 
you know, the law might say very many things about what rape and sexual violence is. And like I said, the law is very broad. And, you know, if it was being enacted as it should, as it says on paper, it would be beautiful. But the reality is also that there are legal definitions of rape and there are social, personal, moral, you know, religious definitions of rape as well. And so my sort of, you know, fail safe is that is to be survivor centered. So for you, if what happened to you was sexual violence, maybe the law might not see it that way. But like I said earlier, you, you know, you engaged in a sexual act under certain pretenses and then that was all taken away and, and it's it's perfectly valid for you to feel violated and to feel wronged and to feel like something criminal has happened to you because it has, right? Um, and I think that there's a sort of saying that rape has nothing to do with sex and, and I find that quite damaging because it's got everything to do with sex in that sex is still this very taboo, you know, socially moderated, religiously meaningful aspect of our lives um, and when people use sex and weaponize sex to, to humiliate or to get things out of people they are playing on all of those aspects and they are relying on them to keep the silence of the survivor you know so I'm not going to talk about what he did to me because you know it's taboo to talk about sex or what I did was maybe morally questionable or things like that and all of that is nonsense. Like I said, there's only one bad guy in the situation, and that's the rapist. All of this can be really overwhelming. If we allow ourselves to think about how often this happens and how many people are being violated on a daily basis. And whenever we talk about cases that involve rape and sexual violence, I often hear, how can I make a difference, though? Well, sometimes you can make the biggest difference just by being the person that a survivor can go to. Let yourself be that safe person for someone else. So, you know, like how I also feel about it is that I'm not a judge, I'm not a lawyer, I'm not a police person. So, you know, it takes nothing from me to give the survivor that I see in the counselling room the benefit of the doubt. So whatever they say to me, I'm going to, I'm going to give them the, the benefit of the doubt that they're telling me the truth and that that was meaningful to them. And I wish that society would do similar things because we're not saying, you know, go mob justice this person or anything like that. We're saying, you know, let the survivor know that you are someone they can start with, that they can talk to, that they can hash out, you know, you know what does this mean? Why is this still bothering me? You know, be the safe person for someone and just give them the benefit of the doubt because often they are telling the truth. Most, you know, mostly they are. There's, I think there's still this, also this idea that, you know, women are now, you know, this post-Me Too world, women are now coming after men left, right and centre by accusing them of rape as if it's that easy to do. I mean, the, the official stat, the, last, the, most, the latest one I saw is that I think it's 8.6% of rape trials end in a conviction for rape so that's like from the start from opening the case to the end and I mean obviously some people will be charged with things like GBV or they'll be charged with you know intent to do grievous, grievous bodily harm but to get like the rape conviction 
that number is so low. So you really have to, you know, if someone's going to falsely accuse you of rape and get you to go to prison for the rest of your life, that's quite, that's quite something, you know. In a post-Me Too world, people didn't necessarily decide to start making allegations. They didn't suddenly start making up stories of rape and sexual violence to fit in. The stories were always there. Campaigns like Me Too just gave people the permission to talk about it. You heard the stat that Renal provided. Less than 10% of rape trials will end in a successful conviction. Now there are many reasons behind that, but most people know that a rape trial is not in any way a happy event. It's long, drawn out, and emotionally taxing. So I'm going to put it out there and say that in 99.9% of rape and sexual violence allegations, why would anyone want to falsely accuse? Do false accusations happen? Absolutely. Are they common? Not at all. A topic that is really close to my heart is sexual and domestic violence against male victims. It's a subject that is so rarely spoken about and really not well understood. I asked Renelle about the male survivors that she sees coming through the Rape Crisis Centre. We are seeing a lot more male rape survivors come in for counselling. And I see that as a good thing because I think it doesn't mean that more men are being raped. It means that more men are feeling comfortable to come forward and get help. And so for me, that's a good thing because it's, it absolutely happens. And I, you know, especially there's so many misconceptions about that and that men can't really be raped or that if, you know, he must be gay or, or, or things like that. And, and especially, you know, a lot of, a lot of men are raped by other men as well, which is, you know, it's part of the stigma then as well. And I think, you know, a lot of men, especially around like any sort of anal penetration, it's very shameful for people. Um, it's, you know, and it's still something that people feel very stigmatized around. So they don't want to talk about that side of it either. But then also if you see male rape survivors who were raped by women, you know, a lot of the time the body responds to sort of sexual stimulation to protect itself. So a lot of male rape survivors will say, you know, I got an erection when this was happening, so it must have meant that I wanted it. And that's not true. It's the body sort of responding to stimulation and sometimes it's trying, to, it doesn't know, it doesn't know how to differentiate sometimes around is this a safe wanted experience. And I think so there's a lot of this stigma around, you know, what anal penetration means, about you know, maybe having an erection. But then also things about men don't get raped, you know. And, and I mean, that was the case with that bishop's, you know, that bishop's scandal with the, the female teacher. Um, the comments were crazy. They were like, um, they were like, oh, well, she's hot, lucky boys, you know, like, why are they complaining? She's so good looking. She's young, you know, like, and it completely, it completely disregards how serious a rape is on a person's life and how traumatic traumatizing it can be and how scary it can be as well and I think I mean that's why I think you mentioned it as well as Dion Wiggett's podcast and his approach is so interesting because he he sort of like talks about these 
these aspects of male rape and that they are, you know, it is misunderstood. It, it, you know, it's sort of like he makes fun of the fact that he's like, you know, he's a gay man and he's like, I don't know if that's because I was raped, you know, and so he like sort of approaches it by answering the questions I think people don't want to say out loud that they are thinking. But it stigmatizes men and it doesn't let them come forward. And I think, and especially of young boys, you know, it's, it's also a big thing around, it's, you know, rapists or perpetrators are also looking for people that are vulnerable. And that's not just women. Um, it's men, it's feminist men, so gay men as well. Uh, uh, there's a great quote by um, Professor Pumnatola where she talks about it. It doesn't, you know, it's always enacted against the feminine. And that doesn't mean... It doesn't mean woman, it means, you know, not the hyper-masculine. So it's against young boys as well, or school kids. It absolutely is happening. The devastating impact that rape and sexual violence has on men and young boys cannot be ignored in this conversation. I personally know men who have experienced sexual abuse as children from male and female perpetrators. And some of that abuse was dressed up as high school boys having so-called sex with older women, teachers, etc. And those men live with that trauma. Even though at that time, in certain types of situations, they may believe that they had consented. A child of that age does not have the ability to fully consent and understand what they are agreeing to. As a result... If that trauma is not dealt with, they find it difficult to have healthy relationships. They may develop addictions to pornography or sex or substances. And another aspect of what Renal said that I'd like to highlight is that the natural physical reaction to sexual stimuli, which can happen when a man is raped, is not limited to men. There are many female sexual violence survivors who also report experiencing a physical reaction to rape that they have no control over. So, and just from like a, a trauma perspective, that's actually, it's very normal because when we are in situations that the brain perceives as sort of threatening and it goes into that, you know, fight, flight or freeze mode, it sort of switches into primal survival mode instead of, higher order cognitive thinking mode and that you know the survival mode is very much in the body so the body is going to go okay well you know you lubricate the vagina must now lubricate because you know it's being rubbed or, or things like that or it's, see, or it's seeing an erect penis or whatever the case may be so the body will respond in all sorts of ways and, I, and it does it makes a lot of survivors feel like their, their rapes are not illegitimate it's actually I mean, on the other side, another thing that we I hear a lot of in the counseling space is that survivors will say, you know, he started raping me with his penis and then he lost his erection. And they sort of feel like, so, so now what? You know, like if the person didn't ejaculate or things like that. But a lot of rapists actually lose their erection, you know, in the struggle or maybe they realize what they're, you know, who knows? But um, and that's also when you see things like penetration with bottles, with weapons, with things like that, because there's this real rage around like 
the penis failing at its sexual weaponry. And that's that's a huge part of rape that nobody talks about. And I think it's because we we have this idea about what it what it must look like. And I think it's also a big part, I think, of, of survivors' experience is that, you know, what does this still count? The, you know, the person lost direction or they penetrated me with their fingers or with uh, an object or things like that. And you know, you, I, I actually hear that more than you'd think. If there's one thing that you walk away with today, I hope it's that whether or not your experience fits a criminal definition of rape or sexual violence is absolutely negligible. You do not need to put someone behind bars for your experience and your trauma to be valid. For a survivor, and as someone perhaps supporting a survivor, don't link your healing to the justice system. That is secondary. Think about how you can start to heal from this, both physically and emotionally, as a completely separate journey to any criminal proceedings, whether or not you choose to go down that path. And this is the perspective with which the Rape Crisis Trust also approaches their survivor services. One of the, the strategies that we, we adopt in the counselling room is that even if the survivor is going through the rape trial process, their recovery cannot depend on the outcome of the trial because the trial, there's so much there that we can't control and that's contingent on all sorts of external things. So if survivors are thinking, okay, if he gets convicted, then I'm going to be okay, it's not a good thing because, you know, we try to, we try to work on that and, like, how, how can we make your recovery independent of what happens to your perpetrator? I mean, so many survivors also will come in and be like, you know, the, the fucker died or something. Like, now, you know, they were really hoping that, like, they could maybe have their day in court or maybe have the conversation with them or tell them this is how you impacted their life and then the person's dead. And then it's like, now what? You know, so... Yeah, I also, I, a big belief of mine is that, I mean, recovery from rape is absolutely possible. It's very harmful to think that once you've been raped, you know, you're basically dead or you, there's no coming back for you, you know. But it has to be independent of whatever the, the sort of criminal justice system does. Can I just say, in amongst all of this bleakness, how cool Renal Kukumur is? I can see her going into battle for the survivors she counsels. And sometimes there's only one word that can accurately describe a rapist. The other problem with linking recovery to the criminal justice process is that really, it's never going to be enough. There is never going to be enough jail time to make right a rape, ever so if the survivor is looking to the criminal justice system for validation of the damage their crime caused, they will never get that. Absolutely. Yo, I, you know, Nicole, I hear that a lot around bail as well, where survivors will say, he got 250 rand bail. Is that how much this costs? You know, like how much my, my rape costs, basically. Or, or also sometimes, especially with child rape, where... Maybe the parents might have been paid off to keep quiet about it. 
and then the adult survivor comes to us and they're sort of like, you know, for my parents, what happened to me was 3,000 rands, you know, and like, it's difficult, it's, it's hard and it's, you know, there's a lot of rage that goes into that because we do, we're trying to take a very complicated, traumatic thing and put it into legal language and into sort of, you know, criminological language as well. And it's messy, you know, as people are. A very good point that Ronal made about rape convictions and sentencing is that because our minimum sentences in South Africa for rape are relatively high, judges will always look for reasons that they should err on the side of caution in sentencing. So if something looks like a mitigating circumstance, they're far more likely to accept it as a reason to reduce sentence than in a murder trial, for instance. And that has the impact of sending a difficult message about what type of crime rape is. I think it's really important for us to know what steps to take in the events that you or someone you know experiences a rape or sexual violence. Just so that people do know, so there's no statute of limitations on rape in South Africa. So you can report rape 20 years after it happened. Um, and a lot of things that we hear is that people will say, well, if I report 20 years later, there's no, you know, there's no DNA evidence or there's, uh, there was no forensic exam done. And what I do want to say is people mustn't be put off by that because just because they can prove that there was maybe, you know, semen in the vagina, the defense often turns around and says, well, all that proves is that there was sex. It doesn't prove that it was rape. So it, it's, you know, DNA evidence isn't the solve all that I think people think it is as well. You know, immediately after being raped, if you do want to report it, or even if you just want, you know, if you want that evidence for later, let's say, when you're ready, the important thing is to get some kind of help. And to that might mean going to something called a Tutuzela Care Center um, or a forensic unit. And those are sort of specialized sexual offenses in a one-stop shops where you can get access to a medical exam, to crisis counselling. They will activate the criminal justice system process. They will do the sort of, you know, take blood. And then they also give people uh, post-exposure prophylaxis for HIV exposure and, you know, the morning after pill or things like that. But those, those the medications fall within, you know, a, a small window of time. But for survivors, it's important to get medical attention just because you never know what your perpetrator, if your perpetrator has, you know, infected you with something or anything like that, or, you know, if you're pregnant or things like that. But I think the most, and, and obviously that also means that's where you hear things like don't shower, put your clothing that you were wearing, bring it with to the hospital and things like that. And I think, the other thing that I think is important is that if you do report the rape and you make a statement to the police, don't lie. And I, what I mean is not about the rape. I mean, if you were maybe smoking weed or, you know, you were flirting with the person or whatever, put that in your statement because, you know, flirting with somebody is not a crime. But what happens often is survivors feel they've got to be this perfect survivor and this perfect person. So then they, they, they leave things out. And then when the defense lawyer comes for them, they're like, well, why did you lie about, you know, wearing a skirt or whatever the case may be? 
So to also just know that, you know, your, your experience is valid, even if you were doing silly things, questionable things, things that you weren't supposed to, what happened to you is what is, is the thing that's wrong. It's not your, your behavior that is the crime. So some important points that Renal raised there. There are 55 Tutuzela care centers in South Africa. You can access the location of these centers by going to www.gov.za forward slash TCC. If you don't have a TCC in your area, head to your nearest hospital emergency room or clinic and they will guide you to the closest forensic facility. I cannot stress enough how important it is that rape or sexual violence survivors get themselves medical care. Even if you don't want to report the crime, that is an entirely separate issue. And if you're an adult of major age, no one can force you to report. But the long-term emotional trauma of a sexual violence incident is bad enough. You do not also want to be living with the added physical trauma, such as an STD or an unwanted pregnancy. And this is something we need to guide our friends, sisters and brothers into. If someone reports to you that they've been raped, please help them to understand the importance of this step. I think that the Rape Crisis Cape Town Trust is doing phenomenal work. I asked Renal how we can contribute to the work that they're doing if we so wished. Sure. So, I mean, obviously donating funds is, is always first prize. You know, we have a, a mechanism for that. But also, um, I think things like, you know, share the contact details. You know, let the survivors in your life know that there's places they can go um, that there are safe people, that there are, they, they can start somewhere. Renal also provided me with some amazing resources that I'll be linking in the show notes and on social media. So keep an eye out for those. I'd like to thank Renal Kukumur for taking the time to chat to me about this really important topic. I hope that our conversation has got you thinking provided you with a point of view or a piece of information you didn't have before, or even just made you think more about the topic of rape and sexual violence. As much as it's not a pleasant topic to have to discuss, if we are really serious about stemming the tide of rape and sexual violence in this country, we have to have these types of conversations with each other and with ourselves. If you only ever share one episode of True Crime South Africa with your friends and family, please make it this one. Thank you for listening to my interview with Renal Kukumur, Counseling Coordinator at the Rape Crisis Cape Town Trust. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe to the show on the platform you're using to listen right now. You can also follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. I'll be back next Friday with another episode. Until then, thank you for your support and I'll chat to you soon. Mm-hmm.